0: Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Over my career, I've had the privilege of being a part of some fascinating startups. A few that were extremely successful, and a few not so much, which is pretty good odds considering 90% of startups fail. In 2023, there are almost 73,000 startups in the United States, each with their own unique blend of ideas, culture, and legal support. And lucky for us, out of 1.3 million lawyers in the United States, for this episode, we have two of them. Joining me today is Tom Biscaglia, the game attorney, and Anthony Millen, founder and co-chair of Next.Law, to discuss legal challenges with the rapid growth of technology and how to empower startups to be successful. To support the show, visit chrishood.com show. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, follow us on social media, or you can email me directly, show at chrishood.com. I'm Chris Hood, and let's get connected.
1: Connecting. Access
2: granted. The Chris Hood Digital Show, where global business and technology leaders meet to discuss strategy, innovation, and digital acceleration. Five, four,
1: three, two, one.
2: Your digital evolution starts now. Here's
1: your host, Chris Hood.
0: Welcome to the show. This is a lengthy topic today, so I want to get right into it and introduce our guest. Tom, would you mind introducing yourself and a little bit about your background?
1: My name's Tom Bascalia. I'm known in the industry as the game attorney. I've been representing independent game developers since 1991. I represented over 200 independents. Some of my clients need mentoring on a constant basis. Anyway, that's the, but that's what I do, and I, I'm sort of outside general counsel for my clients.
0: Anthony, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure.
2: Great to be here today with you, Chris. My name is Anthony Millen. I have spent the last 25 years in the startup ecosystem as a serial entrepreneur, I've co-founded several, uh, VC and private equity backed companies. I've also been a venture partner in a seed stage venture capital fund and have spent a lot of time as well as a startup attorney working with startup and emerging growth companies and I'm currently the founder and co-chair of an innovative new model for delivering legal services to startup and emerging growth companies that came from my experience being on the entrepreneurial side, consuming those services and looking at the way I would have wanted legal services to be delivered as an entrepreneur.
0: Do you get into the advisory of the organization at all? Yes, so we spend a lot of time
2: working with startups on um, guiding them through our our underlying mission at Next and Next.Law, which is part of Shulman Rogers, is really enabling and empowering startup success, so we work a lot of the time that we spend is spent guiding, educating, working on strategy, working on decisions in addition to the actual legal work that's being done with that. The two are very integrated, but the advisory side and the guiding is is probably the biggest part of what we do.
0: When you compare, say, a gaming developer or uh, an indie game studio with some of the other types of startups that are out there now in the tech space, do you see similarities or differences in the work that you're doing?
1: Well, I think there's a huge difference in, in a lot, a lot of times in the culture. Most traditional startups are about making money, coming up with a business idea that's maybe blue ocean that's going to change things, and then they will be able to monetize that in a meaningful way. And I, what I find with indies is uh, they love games and they just want to make games. So I think it's more akin to say. The music industry in the 50s and 60s, or even the music industry today, where you've got these garage bands who are just all about passion with not a lot of brains that are getting taken advantage of constantly. And sort of that's, those are the people that I protect and try to help. So there, I think there's a qualitative difference there. They're not near as business savvy, uh, mostly. You know, I mean, there are the exceptions, uh, but a lot of the clients that I've dealt with, they just needed that other person who was a business person that wasn't there to exploit them, but was there to ex- help them exploit their product. And I think that's it's kind of, if I could say there's a missing piece in the industry, we probably need more people like that that are good business people that are genuine about wanting to protect their company.
0: You mentioned that you spend some time mentoring some of your clients. In what areas are you specifically spending time with them?
1: It all starts with clean up your act. You can't sell what you don't own. A lot of it is initially making sure that they've properly secured their employees that their intellectual property rights are all in line. They're not exceeding their reach in a lot of ways. And then I also will help them bring their game to market, come up with a marketing strategy. I'll introduce them to people that I know in the industry, which after th- or thirty plus years, I guess is a lot of people. you know and that and just that kind of thing when you're you're running a small team, say anywhere from you know six to twenty people. And you're the head of the team and you're trying to make decisions that are going to impact everyone. They don't have anyone to talk to about what, what the problems that they have to deal with on a business level. And I think having an outside counsel just to sound stuff off of, if nothing else, is, uh, is quite a valuable thing. Usually uh, in the industry, you know, we're, we're dealing with third-party funding. And if it's a startup, you have very little leverage in the negotiations, so it's almost take whatever you can get. My clients certainly think that I don't, but, you know. So it's constant struggle getting them to uh, to focus on what the deal they need as opposed to trying to keep the studio alive.
2: The culture of an organization is critical to the growth of an organization. You can't build and execute and grow, particularly from an early stage, if you're not building building the right culture. So. We we often talk to clients and and advise them around that, but we see we see culture as a cornerstone and a foundation for building and scaling after that. I think you know what becomes very hard is when you start with a great culture that you've been nurturing and building from the beginning and you grow to a certain size, the challenge becomes how to maintain it and how to to not lose that, that core uh, of, of what kind of made you special, your own special source in terms of the uniqueness of the, of the organization that you're building. I think it's very important.
0: And Tom, you were just talking about negotiations. I think this is one of the big things inside of all startups, whether it's an indie studio you get your first opportunity to sell a game and they get a contract handed to them. Or even on a startup, you get your first opportunity to raise funding. What are some of the things that entrepreneurs who may be listening to this have to keep in mind when either raising money or closing a deal?
1: I think being able to get a deep understanding of the dynamics of a specific transaction in terms of the pros and cons in both directions, you know, understanding the other side, what their desires are, what they want, and then making sure that that aligns in large part with what the startup is looking for, what the studio is looking for. Uh, a lot of times, uh, I, 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 and the other thing I think is, and this is really critical that I see in the industry, and that is if you're a startup and you're looking for funding, that's a full-time job. That's all you're going to do. Unfortunately, it's really hard to run your business while you're hunting, you know? And I've seen, I've seen people with what I thought were very solid ideas that could have been brought to market, and they spent those two years looking for funding instead of building their company. And I, from my point of view, if they had just gone forward and started selling their product, they would have done much better than trying to get enough money so they could ramp up to sell their product. You know, sometimes it's easier to just go ahead and do it. And I'll be frank, most of my clients are not looking for funding, mostly because when you're starting up, you don't have the valuation to be able to raise the kind of money you need without basically giving away the company. And uh, when you're to the point where you don't have to give away the company, you probably don't need the money.
2: On my side, you know, we do a lot of work with companies raising capital, and I think education becomes core for the founder. You, Especially first-time founders haven't been through this process before, and they're negotiating with investors who this is all they do. And so working with somebody who can really first of all educate you as to what are the core elements that you're going to be negotiating about. So, you know, to to us there are three core levers or areas that a founder needs to be aware of when they're negotiating around a financing. The first one, which is where founders spend most of their time, is really around Valuation, whether in a safe or convertible notes, it's a cap, or whether in a price round, it's an actual valuation. But often founders spend almost all their time thinking just on that element, um, and there are important things to know when you're dealing with valuation. Um, Uh, in terms of of whether the investor is giving you something on a pre or post money or fully diluted basis. So it's important to know what, what you're talking about. But then there are two other areas where investors spend a lot of their time and founders don't often realize, but there's a lot of rights and preferences that get negotiated. And those rights and preferences can have a real impact on how money flows later on rights people have to participate in future rounds whether an investor gets to get their money back and then share in the proceeds of the sale and so there's this list of rights and preferences that's the second and then the third one that you have to focus on is all the protective provisions so you may think you're selling 10% of your company you control the board of directors because you have two board seats to the investors, one, but these protective provisions that get negotiated often give significant veto rights to the investors around really core parts of of operating a company. And so whether you end up agreeing to some of them or, or or not, at least understanding what's going on around those three areas is really important in a negotiation for financing.
1: It's funny because I get the, the similar model uh, dynamic. Uh, most of the uh, con- most of the negotiations I'm involved with are either with like rev share funding as opposed to uh, traditional funding or mostly uh, publisher funding of projects where it's a, it's a single one-off uh, issues such as IP ownership and that go back and forth. But the dynamic is still the same. What you've got is you've got a studio I actually I've told people I would have been smarter for me to to go after working for publishers instead of developers because publishers do twenty deals a year and developers do one deal every three years. But you see it all the time where you get a very experienced team on the other side. Sometimes to the to the level of and I'm sure you see this with VC funders arrogance, right? And you're dealing with this corporate arrogance with well we have the money so you don't have anything. And my feeling is you know you got a company that sells games and we have a game you want. All you have is money. you know. If all they have is money and they need games to sell and you have a game they need to sell, maybe you have more leverage than you think. The other thing I get with rookies, and I suspect you may get this, is they go into negotiations trying to think of what the other side wants and making sure that they don't step on any toes in the negotiation, which is a really bad way to negotiate. You know, You have to negotiate. You negotiate your deal, not their deal.
2: Yeah. And I think Tom, along the lines of what you were, you know, you were saying there in terms of the, whether it's the game developers or other entrepreneurs is looking at doing due diligence on the investor, realizing that when you take money from, from one of these investors, um, This is a long-term partnership and businesses don't always, and most often don't follow a straight trajectory up. There are ups and there are downs. There are cycles in your business. There are cycles in the market. And who you're partnered with from a capital point of view is gonna play a really critical role in terms of how this business does through those ups and downs. And so sometimes um, the founders are, don't realize, like Tom said, if they have a great company or a great product or a great game, they don't realize that they they have the power to make sure they're aligned to their investors, that the, the culturally there is a fit. They should interview CEOs of other companies who've invested, who've had investments from that investor. And they should they should also spend time speaking to companies who did well and companies that didn't do well. So that you see how the investors act on both sides of that.
1: I was talking about iteration in game development and how that's how great games are made by iterating. And I know that in uh, in the VC culture, it often happens that somebody has a, a technology that they're trying to productize and all of a sudden halfway through those first two years, they realize that they need to change their market readers, they need to pivot the entire the entire mission right and how is that handled with in terms of the initial investors do you have to go back to them and say hey we've changed our mind we're not going to make this we're going to make that how does that go is that do you have to renegotiate the terms or are you pretty much once they give you the money you can do what you want unless they unless you can't
2: it depends on what is negotiated with the investors so you know when you ask about one of the most important things to do after you bring capital in that is stay very closely, uh, you know, in terms of keeping your investors informed, you should be, they should know frequently what's going on with the business. So that if you start running into trouble and you need to pivot, they're part of that conversation you know they're part of the brainstorming they want you to succeed they have capital in the business and so if you've been keeping people informed with you all the way through they are there with you if you need to pivot if you suddenly call an investor and say product didn't work no one's buying it we've got a two weeks left of capital what can you do to help me that is a crisis situation that you never want to find yourself in now as far as legally there are clauses where we talked about those protective provisions. There are clauses that could be negotiated by investors where they say, you cannot substantially change the nature of the business without our consent. So if, if you are going to be doing that, and there is a clause that's in there, there is language that could be built in by investors to protect the fact that they thought they were investing in a software as a service, you know consumer oriented or b2b business and suddenly you're in climate building a hardware product that you know that that on their money that that kind of thing is is built in but I would say the best advice is treat investors like your partners and keep them informed and have them part of the conversation so that if you need to pivot and many companies like Tom said end up pivoting Everyone is there and often if you've been with the investors all the way through and they're part of the decision, they may even put in some additional capital to help you through that pivot leading up to your next big raise.
0: One of the biggest disruptors is technology. And obviously we can't go much further into this conversation without talking about how AI is drastically disrupting businesses, game development, and even law.
1: I have a question for Anthony. Do you think we're going to have jobs in 10 years or do you think it's five years?
2: Yeah, I think jobs are going to be different. And I think that the ability that there is, like all technology that comes in, I think that you have to kind of understand it, understand where its strengths are, understand where it's going to be better than what a person could do understand where its impact is going to be, and then understand how to leverage that technology to do what you do or parts of what you do better. So I think if you blind to it or ignore it, it's going to disrupt and take, you know, take, like you said, take away big parts of what lawyers do will, will be um, re- replaced by technology. But that just means that the industry is going to evolve. I don't think that you're going to necessarily have no lawyers. I think that the way legal firms practice and what they spend their time on in terms of how they work with clients is going to evolve with the technology.
1: Yeah, I suspect it'll hit paralegals harder than it hits lawyers because somebody has to have lunch with the client. No, but nobody wants to go to lunch with an AI. So there you go. the most useless parts of our job are going to be left, and we'll be proofreading for the robots. I just love it. I think it's amazing. I was doing a response to an office action at trademark the other day, and I thought, I should ask GPT Chat to try to do this for you." <laughs> I chickened out and wrote it myself, but it's a it's a thing, you know it's, I, I look at how do I, how is it that I construct? When I'm negotiating a publishing deal, and what I do is I look back at the 200 or so that I've done, right, and I think of all the times that something went wrong and it affected the progress or the the, the ultimate result for my client, and then I try to make sure that I build that back into the contract. That's how some companies' contracts get so ridiculously ugly because they just add stuff without taking it out. You you do that and then I start to think, well, let's see if I was an AI and I could instantaneously access, say, 10,000 publisher agreements and then the lawyer told me what they want out of this, there's the lawyer's job. Tell the AI what you want. But you could do that with ordinary language and say, I want this provision, that provision, this provision. I want this law to apply. I want binding arbitration or I want court, you know, whatever. All of the different variables that we put in our contracts, right? both on the front end and the boilerplate and on the back end, and then it just writes it based on every, every other contract that's ever been written in that field. And then I proofread it. It sounds nice. I mean, it's the kind of way I'd like to work that way. You know, I'd just as soon have somebody else do all the, all the heavy lifting, but at the same time, I don't know. The AI we're seeing now, is, as impressive as it is, is in its infancy. And the more we use it and the more we adapt to it, it it's going to adapt to us. I think it'll be a wonderful, hopefully a wonderful servant and not an evil master.
2: Yeah, I I mean, it's interesting. I think in the legal field, I was just at a big national industry conference. You get a sense that people realize we're at the beginning of kind of a complete paradigm shift. This is not like a small step forward. This is the beginning of something pretty fundamental to the legal industry. They had a session on chat GBT and on uh, generative AI, and they ended up having to open up like multiple ballrooms just to fit everybody in who wanted to attend that one session that just overflowed, and then they filled another room and that overflowed. So I think people realize and, and people are starting to really try to, under- knowing it will impact, trying to understand its impact.
0: Elon Musk came out with several other tech executives saying that we should put a pause on the development of AI because there's not enough groundwork or rules put in place to govern us around AI. And I think that gets into some of these legal battles. It is the wild, wild west currently, just like the internet was when it first came out. And it took several years for there to be some guidelines as to how we were gonna structure it. Unfortunately, AI is moving at such a rapid pace that we don't have two or three years to try to figure out how we're going to govern this.
2: If you look at the internet, Chris, which you brought up as an example, we're still trying to figure out decades later how to regulate components of the internet. I mean, there's still tremendous Concern over certain aspects of social media and regulations that should have been put into place. So, you know, it feels like regulations are never mind yours, but decades behind where technology is going and technology is becoming more powerful. So, you know, if you look at just the overall power and impact of where AI can take you, the fact that regulations c- Governments don't move fast enough to get in front of something that once the genie's out of the bottle, you can't put back in. to have certain ground rules and regulations in front, I think it's the same with genetic engineering on on that front uh, in terms of going in and being able to alter genes. You know, often people and technology just outstrips the regulatory environment, and then you're, You have intended consequences of that technology and then you have unintended consequences with significant negative impact of new technologies. And that is an underlying challenge that's been going on for a long time and may even be more challenging with the power of
1: AI. This reminds me of the 90s when I was out at the Institute for Law and Technology at Berkeley. There was a a consolidation of people from Oracle and uh, Stanford and and Berkeley. Uh, And it was all about law and technology. This was in the mid-90s. And the the debate then was, on one side, you had the traditional government types who were saying, how do we regulate the internet? And on the other side, you had the free thinking guys, uh, Electric Frontier Foundation and those guys, who were saying, should we regulate the internet? (laughs) which are two very different questions. And I think we have the same thing with AI. First of all, I don't think that humans are gonna be fast enough to put it back in the bottle. It's already out. And we can say all the scrupulous people shouldn't be able to do this, and all the unscrupulous people are gonna do it anyway. You know, how do you punish an AI? And once it's out, it's out. I think we need to change the way we look at the world. That's all. It's international, borders are becoming more and more meaningless. Certainly with AI, they're gonna be completely meaningless. I don't think governments can do it. Frankly, I think technology is way more powerful than any government right now, anyway.
0: You know, it's not just borders between countries, as you're talking about, but what we're also seeing is that companies are becoming borderless. And I agree with you. I think it's fascinating to see the growth and the rapidness of AI, but even other areas that are fueling AI, like data. And Anthony, as you mentioned, the impact that it's having on social media and just security across the world in terms of technology. It's really blowing up and going to be incredibly challenging to maintain, who knows where we're gonna be by the end of this year, let alone next year. Thank you both for spending time with us today and talking about startups and technology. It's been a great conversation.
2: Great,
1: thank you, Chris, and thank you, Tom. Yeah, this was wonderful. Chris, I appreciate you offering me the opportunity to be here.
0: And of course, thanks to all of you who are listening. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform and please leave a review. Your feedback helps us improve, grow, and reach a wider audience. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for the show, you can connect with us throughout social media or online at Show or ChrisHood.com. And please share this episode with your friends, family, colleagues, or anyone else looking to grow their business and start their digital evolution. Until next week, take care and stay connected.